Today's episode is brought to you in part by the Georgia Impact Podcast, bringing you a firsthand look at the big opportunities and issues facing today's software entrepreneurs. On the show, they interview CEOs and founders of software companies and other thought leaders in the space, so you can hear firsthand how they're working to solve business problems with cutting-edge tech just like we do here on The Disruptors. This show helps CEOs, founders, and product leaders, really anyone who's interested in the latest developments in software startup scene, understand a wide range of topics. Things like machine learning and AI, conversational interfaces, privacy, ethics, and trust, big problems in the AI space, blockchain, quantum computing, and other emerging technologies. You can find and subscribe to the Georgia Impact Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Do you run a business or blog and hate hosting and managing your site? If you do, check out WP Engine, the managed WordPress hosting company, 500,000 plus sites trust to simplify everything. They've got a special offer just for you listeners. If you go to disruptors.fm slash WP Engine, you'll get 35 free premium studio press themes with any purchase. Look at our site. I couldn't do this design on my own. You need themes. These guys help you manage everything and simplify it. Save yourself a ton of time and headache in the process. Disruptors.fm slash WP Engine. And now, let's get on with the program. Well, this is the network effect for most innovation, right? So, you know, cars wouldn't be a thing unless the first people who were offered cars said, yeah, that looks like a handy thing to have. And then the more people who buy cars, well, then the more they demand other infrastructure like gas stations and roads. And then the more people who use cards and have gas stations and roads, then the more the environment around us is all set up for that. And some more that other people on the margin are going to be tempted also going to do that. And then by the time everybody's using it, well, now it's hard for you to opt out. And so, yes, when, when most people are using something, there's going to be a pressure for you to use it as well. But that was fundamentally because lots of people found it attractive at some point. Same way for Facebook and Google. They, they wouldn't be the powerhouses they were now if at some point a lot of people weren't attracted and voluntarily choose to use them. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. I consider myself a bit of an ADD innovator. I'm fascinated by so many different topics, from e-commerce to space, sci-fi to longevity, and everything in between. I love having the world's smartest folks on the podcast, and I'm honored that we have the best of the best come to The Disruptors to talk about the future of tomorrow and how we create a better one. And today's guest, he's someone built it and cut in my vein in terms of really being involved in the nitty gritty of so many incredible fields. It's Robin Hansen. He's back on the program for the second time. This is our first repeat guest. And you know what? Robin was awesome the first time. The second time, probably even better. We've got Robin Hansen. If you guys haven't checked it out, that's episode 14. You can find it in the back catalogs. Or if you want to jump straight into this one, fine. Because you know what? We tackle totally new topics that are completely unrelated. Robin's the Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University, a research associate on the future of human Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford, did his doctorate at Caltech in social sciences. He's got a degree in physics and philosophy from the University of Chicago and has basically spent his entire working adult life studying everything. He's spent nine years as a research programmer. He's worked at Lockheed and NASA, over 3,500 citations, and he's got a couple of books, The Age of M, which is what the world looks like when we have brain emulation technology and AI available to all of us, an elephant in the brain, the hidden motives of everyday life. He's worked with DARPA and worked with prediction markets and is really focused on the economics and incentives behind 
everyday life and how that affects all of us. In today's episode, we'll discuss unconventional approaches to legal reform, which just might work, what Robin proposes to fix America's immigration problem, Trump, I hope you're listening, the sadistic yet serious future where your insurance company enforces the law, why governments are outdated and often need a reset, the reason social signaling is one of the biggest problems in society, and how true libertarianism could lift a Soviet-like surveillance and oppression. Now, before we jump into the episode, I wanted to do a bit of housekeeping. As I'm sure some of you guys have heard, we've started to take a couple of selected advertisers on for the disruptors, and I wanted to explain that. My philosophy has always been, let's fund this, if possible, with patrons, with listener support, because you guys are the absolute best, and we like to make sure that we can stand behind all the products and services that we discuss, because if it doesn't meet my moral standard, it doesn't meet our moral standard, what are you guys going to think when we try to have episodes like this, where we talk about really deep philosophical topics, really questionable things. I want you all to know that we're not being influenced in any way, shape, or form. But we have. We've decided to take some advertisers on. This isn't going to change anything about the disruptors. All that it's going to add is a couple of little blurps here and there where we discuss awesome products and podcasts, etc. that we like, ones that we love, we use. And these won't be necessarily me raving on and on about a service. These won't be two, three, five, ten minute long spiels. We won't have the incredible, incredible treadmill of advertisements happening at the beginning and, and middle of every single episode. We'll have a couple so that we can support our costs and we can make this something sustainable because right now we have 15 patrons on Patreon, which you can support at disruptors.fm slash Patreon. And I'm incredibly grateful to all of those people. But to make this sustainable costs so much more than that. And that's not even in taking into account my time, which at this point, we're at around 100 episodes into this. We're at about the year mark. This has been something I've dedicated a ton of time and energy to. And I'm sure if you've listened to 100 episodes, shoot, you've dedicated a ton of time and energy to. And some of our listeners have decided to support us. They've decided to go the ad-free mount and try to help us reach that sustainability mark. If you've done that, you'll still continue. You'll get ad-free episodes. Plus, we do throw in a couple of bonus episodes. So, To date, there's been three, four, maybe five bonus episodes that haven't gone out the main feed. They've only gone out to our supporters, which you guys can access at disruptors.fm slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We're taking on sponsors so that we're able to be as responsible as possible in terms of making this a long-term sustainable production for all of you guys. We want to make this last so that we can keep having these important conversations with really incredible people on ways we can build a better future for humanity. So now, without further ado, now that you understand a little bit more about us and where we are, let's go. I give you Robin Hanson. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And great to have the technology finally working. It's always like, you got to get these things to work. And we got it. We're making it happen. Thanks for coming today. I wanted to get you on because you're you're an interesting guy in a lot of ways. Can you give a quick 30,000 foot v- overview of your story and then we'll jump into it? I'm an economics professor, almost 60 years old now, but... I long ago started out in engineering, I switched to physics, I did philosophy of science, then I did nine years of computer research, went back to school at Caltech in uh, social science, did some political science, and I'm all across the map in the sense of uh, just interested in a wide range of things. So you're an ADD da Vinci of (laughs) sorts, you like to jump into a little bit of everything, right? Well, actually, I think it's kind of the usual failure mode for wannabe intellectuals. That is, uh, if you try to be a professor or something like that, the usual one of the biggest things that goes wrong is that you try, you don't specialize enough. 
uh, you, you, you enjoy yourself, you spread yourself out, just uh, reading what seems interesting. And the world of um, paid intellectuals really wants you to focus and specialize. So you fail by being happy and doing what you love. Is that the, is that the gist of it? Right, right. And so I, I snuck by on the edge of, uh, of almost failing, but not quite, and um, made it in. And uh, even though I'm spread out too much compared to what would uh, maximize my career success. But like we were saying, you're spread out because you like to tackle big topics and big problems. That's why you're here. What's right, but big problem you're in some on? sense, most people do. <laughs> so that's most the weird thing. Do, but the more most, specialized you get, the less right. big the, problems the, the, you can do. The world rewards the specialization. And so most of the people you see are successful, they are very specialized. And the most of the people who are unsuccessful, they're pretty general. You and think so, that's going to continue though? I feel like it's yeah, kind of in, at a tipping point. No, no, it'll probably continue. It seems like a pretty robust thing, my guess. Maybe. I, I think we're getting with, uh, with the advances in AI, just a lot of what we're able to do. Sure, you might have more in-depth knowledge than someone, but bringing things together, the creativity is where it's going to be at, right? No. <laughs> Sorry. No? Okay. <laughs> I, I, wish it, I wish it were. So, I, our world gives a lot more lip service to creativity than it does actual rewards. Uh, we, we pretend that we like creativity and that we, we think it's great and that we want to reward people creative, but in fact, it's just not true. Uh, our world tends to reward the opposite of creativity, reliability. And there's only a small number of areas where people are rewarded more for creativity, and then it's only certain kinds of creativity. So, uh, you know, you could have an ad agency guy, and you'd reward him for coming up with creative ads, but not for creative dress or creative work hours or <laughs> creative all sorts of other things they could be creative with. Uh, we, we really, you know, mostly want people to be reliable, predictable. Unfortunately, that's the world we live in. So, so in some sense, human minds were, were built to be much more general than the modern world has for us. So, we have this huge modern economy with all these little specialized slots, but your mind wasn't made for those specialized slots. Your mind was made for being a forager in a group of 30 people where uh, you had a really wide range of tasks and you pretty much had to do most everything. And uh, that's what you feel comfortable in. I know you've talked about that a lot before in the past and some theories that you have around the evolution of people in society and how our how roles are structured. Uh, well, there's a lot of things I could say about how people have changed over time, uh, but this is this is one of the most straightforward things to understand. You, you were just built for an, an old world, and a lot of the ways in which um, the modern world feels alien is because you weren't built for this world. You were built for some other different world. And that's a, that's a great example of it right there, actually. The <laughs> phone, it's like we've got cell phones in our pockets, and we're hardwired. So with social media and notifications, you're hardwired to be a sucker and start drooling every time Facebook sends you some bullshit. Uh, that's one of a great many ways, yes, that we are not adapted to this world we're sitting in. Uh, another might, you know, you might just say, you know, we have these adaptations to look for interesting things in our environment, like things that are brightly colored, things that are changing in color and, and intensity, etc. And that made sense in the environment we used to live in, because there weren't very many such things. But now, of course, once advertisers in the world around us knows that that's what we're primed for, well, then they keep sending us these very dramatic images and sounds so that they'll grab our attention. And so now our world is full of these things. And it's not necessarily a good idea for us to pay attention to each one of these in our world. Can we evolve beyond that? If it bleeds, it leads mentality? Uh, well, most of our evolution is cultural evolution. So we, we aren't changing ourselves very fast at all, but we are changing the tools that we use to manage the world around us. And uh, that's probably the main thing you should be hoping for as well. Find ways to uh, build social tools and uh, technical tools and other things that will change the environment uh, and deal with it. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about that? Well, I'm optimistic that in the long run, we will uh, find good adaptations to deal with problems. 
in some sense the the most fundamental thing is though we should expect increasing alienation that is in the sense that if the ideal world for low alienation is to live in the world you were built for and as the world gets more and more strange and more and more different from what you were built for then you have to expect that you're in more and more senses in a world that's strange and not really what feels comfortable or natural and even though we'll find great ways to you know mitigate that and limit that but the fundamental long-term trend pretty much has to be <laughs> moving off farther and farther away from where we started and at faster and faster speeds and f- for a while at least yeah we uh, change is becoming faster so but of course change is faster because we can make change faster <laughs> people often talk as if there's this problem that change is faster than we can handle but in some sense change has always been at the speed that we could handle in the sense that if we could have handled faster speed there would have been a faster speed that is it's our ability to handle change that is in fact the main limitation on the rate of change i don't know if i agree with that i think our ability to create change not our ability to handle it i think they're two different things men's grasp exceeds his reach well in, in the you know literature innovation uh, we distinguish say generating an idea a basic idea and then elaborating the idea and and working out the details uh, so that it can be feasible in some context and then distributing that innovation and then having people receive the innovation and then adapt themselves to it and those later processes are really rate limiting steps we can invent ideas much more fast than we can test them and then distribute them and so we have a huge backlog really of innovations out there that have not been uh, elaborated worked out in detail and distributed and so the, our ability to actually take in a new innovation and and adopt it is in fact the main reason we don't have more of them is that we are limited in that what about the the one-sidedness of of some of the technologies we're creating now possible black swans synthetic biology potentially ai scenarios etc where it's not necessarily we create something and then everybody adopts it and we sing kumbaya but somebody creates something whether intentionally or otherwise and then that expands out into the world well um most innovation in our society is consensual <laughs> in the sense that uh you know you don't buy the new car or the new tv or use the new social media app unless you choose to there are social pressures that will get you to do it even if you're a little uncomfortable or reluctant uh, but mostly these things happen now of course say for a disease a new innovative disease could get out and spread and maybe you don't want the disease but you still catch it and so there definitely are things like that where it's not consensual you um you're just an innovation is imposed on you but thankfully that's relatively rare in our world it's relatively rare but you could kind of make the same argument for Facebook and Google and a lot of these companies at this point is they're kind of the ones that you're societally forced into. They're not the ones that are directly forced onto you, but they're the ones that well, well if you want to use the alternatives, the alternative suck kind of deal. Well, this is the network effect for most innovation, right? So, you know, cars wouldn't be a thing unless the first people who were offered cars said, "Yeah, that looks like a handy thing to have." And then the more people who buy cars, well then the more they demand other infrastructure like gas stations and roads. <laughs> And then the more people who use cars and have gas stations and roads, then the more the environment around us is all set up for that. And so more that other people on the margin are going to be tempted also going to do that. And then by the time everybody's using it, well, now it's hard for you to opt out. And so, yes, when, when most people are using something, there's going to be a pressure for you to use it as well. But that was fundamentally because lots of people found it attractive at some point. Same way for Facebook and Google. They, they wouldn't be the powerhouses they were now if at some point a lot of people weren't attracted and voluntarily choose to use them. Mm-hmm. Fair point. What scares you these days the most? Uh well uh a lot I guess <laughs> one thing that scares me is that uh seems that our in many ways we're becoming more fragile uh in the sense that 
So through, through most of the uh, farming era, the last 10,000 years, civilizations rose and fall, fell. And as they rose, they developed more complicated social structure, trading routes, uh, legal rules, etc., and uh, made a complicated, rich, prosperous society. And then eventually they failed and, and collapsed and started again. But, but that going starting and stopping process was often a way to sort of clear out deadwood in the sense that a lot of things that had accumulated that weren't necessarily that useful would just get cleared out. And it, and it was an enormous cost, of course, but uh, it was a benefit. And, and today we've had this you know record length of peace and prosperity where we've been just accumulating more and more you know interdependent things and not really clearing them out. So I'm, I'm thinking in particular like regulations and law. Um, we are just accumulating this huge backlog and inertia of installed base of law and regulation. And it's just going to make things harder to change. So as you may know, say in the, in the software world, most software uh, accumulates fragility over time. Uh, that is uh, any large software project, you know, the software gets more and more interdependent, harder to change. And eventually you sign a scrap it all and start over. And that's just the fundamental nature of software. And it shows this tendency of systems that as you elaborate them and adapt them to new circumstances, they tend to become more fragile. They, they accumulate interdependencies that you make it hard to change. It, right. And that's in software, the main, you know, so we act at great cost periodically, we basically start over from scratch <laughs> and that's clean slate. And that's a way that we can make new things that are flexible. But our, in our larger society, uh, there are, we don't do that so much. I mean, thankfully, because it's war and, and destruction that forces us to do that. But um, I fear that we are just getting less innovative and less capable of innovation in sort of the fundamental structures of our society. Do we need to have a, a fundamental limit on how long a government or a country can exist? Because I think that's part of the problem. If I wanted to go and change the US now, I get, I get, to, I get the amazing right of being arrested for treason by the most powerful right. entity ever in history. And they'll just go and kill you or do whatever you want with you. And it's not that what you're saying or trying to do is wrong. It's quite literally that you're just dealing with a bureaucracy that in some ways has evolved into a living, almost breathing entity. How do you, how do you handle that? I don't have a good answer. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the fun, if I had a good answer, I wouldn't be the thing that scared me. So you ask me what scares me. <laughs> and I say, here's this problem that I don't have a good answer for, uh, that we accumulate this interdependency and it seems hard to get rid of. But, uh, I mean, a sort of vague hope is that we can, change maybe voluntarily our systems and rules in ways that would then be more flexible and adaptive uh, and allow... Let's, let's talk about that. How do we do it? So, one sort of class of ways is to privatize things in a certain sense. That is, often say if you have a government program or system, it has a set of rules and enabling legislation and history, and then it gets kind of stuck doing the same thing. And then most of the people who use it basically kind of have to use it because it's the one, you know, government-supplied thing. And so, it doesn't have much of an incentive to innovate and vary and try things. So, so, say, think of public schools to start with, say. The more that there's a central public school system that, you know, makes everybody do public schools the same way, there's less of a incentive to go figure out new ways to teach grade school kids uh, because um, there's just the one central system. So, more there's a variation in school systems and, and each system is allowed to try things and they have some sort of competitive pressure where they fear that uh, if they don't innovate, and produce better products that they might lose out, then the more chance there is for innovation in that area. So that, that's just one example where you say, if you were looking for a long run 
uh, flexibility and innovation in education, you might rather not have the single central government-run school system. Um, and I, I think we have similar problems in law, where law is this large integrated system where it's really hard to opt out and uh, you know choose a different law where you're kind of stuck with the one law that everybody stuck has to have. And that means the law isn't very innovative. It's not trying very hard to be innovative. It doesn't feel very threatened. And so I'm especially interested in ways to sort of introduce more competition into law. They're trying to do the opposite of innovation. They're trying to prevent it in a lot of ways. They're trying to stymie or slow down anything that could potentially be disruptive. Well, in some yes. So in the sense of how law is applied to the rest of the world. Well, say, they're, also, they're also compensated by the hour. So right. <laughs> when when your compensation works like that, you have well, great, greatly aligned. Well, now, now many ancient societies uh, didn't allow lawyers, and in fact, until say 150 years ago, typically in the U.S., you didn't need a lawyer to go to court. Uh, and so, you know, traditional law was tried to keep it simple enough that lawyers were not needed and even not allowed. So we are different today in our legal system compared to ancient legal systems in requiring lawyers and allowing lawyers to sort of elaborate a lot of complexity that is in their interest. And so, of course, it's in the interest of the legal profession to sort of emphasize how every little factor ought to be considered and, and weighed in a certain complicated, subtle way that you couldn't figure out and that that's all really important to be taking into account in every case. They have an incentive to, you know, make it as if that were true. Well, it's like marketing. They want to make you feel fat so you have to buy something to make yourself look skinny. It's a uh... And right. let, let, let's face it, what percentage of our politicians come out of some form of law? Are there some type of rich white guy that has some legal background? It's right. A so a solid number. So I'm particularly interested in some ways to sort of make law more competitive. And there are some- Who's doing a good job? Who, who where? Yeah. Who where or, or what entities, well, I mean, what ideas? One example is in, say, corporate incorporation. So today, if you want to start a corporation, you will have bylaws that are the defining rules of your corporation. And you have a choice of where to get those bylaws. Uh, and say in the US, uh, it's very common to get them out of Delaware, no matter where your company is, because people seem to like the Delaware laws of incorporation. So that's an example where you have choice. There's this competing world of different legal contexts where they offer rules of incorporation, and uh, that produces competition, That's which I say at the moment, Delaware is winning. But that's a nice example of the kind of thing you'd like. Is, is this uh, different sources competing to serve you and customers choosing. Is that plausible with the IRS holding a gun to your head? Which well, is more or less how the system is. The IRS doesn't tell you to get incorporated in Delaware. No, no, no. I'm talking about on an individual basis. So like you're an American. If you decide to move somewhere, you have the great right of paying American taxes regardless of where you are. And even if you're out of the country, 365 days a year, you still get to pay a decent percent. Well, certainly one form of competition you might you know, notice is there and wish were stronger where it was competition between nations. Uh, and so the idea that uh, if you don't like the laws of the nation you're in, you could move to another nation, that that's a, a source of competition. But as you notice, of course, it's weak in the sense that it's actually really expensive to move from one country to another. And some countries like the US kind of don't let you leave. And so that limits the competition. Absolutely. But if say, uh, you know, the US or some regions were to allow more kinds of legal competition within the US, then that would uh, have a lot of promise. 50 years from now, will we have more countries or less and why? There's just not much of a change and so probably won't be much of a change. Whatever not direction is. Change. Okay. Nothing it's not the sort of thing that's changing a lot. It's also a thing about cities actually that is long ago, we used to just start new cities all the time. And it's been a while since many new cities were ever started basically. But one of the main things is that once you had things like sewers and 
electricity and things like that, that created kind of a minimum feasible scale for a town. And so uh, now, you know, we have towns that grow or don't grow or even become ghost towns, but people rarely start new ones and people probably won't be starting new nations as much, unfortunately. Until we until we possibly hit space and then we'll see. Then all bets may be off. Yeah, it's a long way off, I'm afraid. It is <laughs> unfortunately. a long way off. I do not want to wear one of those outfits forever. Right. No, I, I would actually put more hope on some cities or some nations just allowing more variation and competition within their scope rather than starting new ones. Um, it just doesn't look good for starting new ones at the moment. So like Estonia or smaller countries that are trying to attract attractive people to their – I mean, shit, Canada. Canada's doing an incredible yeah. job in terms of immigrant. Everyone, okay, let's okay, let's <laughs> talk immigration reform. Everyone's doing a good job compared to the U.S. What is the what is the future? Is this something that ultimately leads to the U.S.'s downfall? Uh, I mean, U.S. Is, has a great inertia <laughs> as it is an economic power, so we're a long way from any sort of downfall scenario. You know, if the more larger a company you are, country you are, then in a sense, the more the internals matter rather to, to your border. So, so. As a share of our economy, the U.S. has a much lower fraction of trade, say, with other nations. If you're, say, Germany or Italy or something, the, the fraction of your stuff you buy that comes from outside the borders is much larger. And so, cross-border things just matter more when you're small. Uh, and that's true for both uh, trade and for immigration. So, the U.S. is so large that we have so many opportunities for moving within that uh, whatever we do badly on the border can't hurt us as much as it would hurt smaller nations. How do we reform the voting system? How do we build a better government? Voting systems are is one. I mean, the way I would like to think about it is that in governance we make two kinds of choices. We make choices of aggregating our beliefs on facts, and we make choices to aggregate our beliefs or opinions on values, and then we make collectively choices that combine these combined facts and values. I think most of our mistakes we're making in the fact side of that equation. <laughs> breakdown. That is, um, in politics, people are very focused on the value dispute and they're so focused on it that they screw up the fact part. So, e even in something like immigration, people primarily come at it as, well, what's my values here? Therefore, which side am I on? Therefore, who's on my side and who's on the other side? And the idea that there could be different facts you might misunderstand that would change your position on these uh, things, it tends to be neglected. You don't tend to think, well, what, what am I assuming wrong about the facts here? That could uh, change my position on, on these things uh, because we're, that's just not where political energy is. Our energy and our emotions are all about like being on our side and against the other side and yay us, boo them. So I think, you know, there, we can get values wrong, but I think what we mostly get wrong is the facts. We, we mostly don't have a good process for pulling together what we all could know into a consensus about the consequences of our actions. So, so for example, you know, when we invaded Iraq, <laughs> That was both about values, like should we care about the rest of the world? Uh, have they, you know, insulted our honor? Do should we respond to our honor? You know, uh, etc. But it was also about like what will happen if we do this? Will we win or lose? Will it make any difference? And so again, in those sorts of disputes, we, we get so focused on the value part that say, you know, if if most of the experts could have known, say that hey, this is just going to fail. Doesn't matter what values you're trying to promote. This is just you're just going to waste a lot of money and lives, and not much is going to happen. Well, if we had known that, that that could have affected our decision, even if we have different values. A lot of people would argue that was the point, though, just to waste a lot of money in a war. Because well, that might be a lot of people would argue that's where the <laughs> oil and money and war were the the two driving factors. Well, if I mean that's the sort of thing one side might accuse the other of, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but it's not the sort of thing people would themselves claim. You know. 
Uh, I'm oh, just no, trying to waste money never more. Say, yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you, you can never actually say it, but people people come up with values to hide the facts in a lot of sure. situations. Sure, but I still think if, if it was common knowledge, if everybody knew this was just going to be a huge waste, it probably wouldn't have happened. There has you'd, to be have some, have a, you'd have to have a future ball machine to do that. You'd have, well, you had to need some ability to make guesses here. So, so I actually think that's you know what we most get wrong in governance is is the fact. So one way we do governance splitting up facts is we have like agencies and we have some authorizing legislation that sets some overall values, and then they're supposed to hire a bunch of experts, and those experts are supposed to figure out the facts and uh, choose and express the facts to achieve whatever values the agency has declared. So, but that often doesn't work so well. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, there's even if the experts do know facts, there's also political pressure to say whatever seems to be the political equilibrium to say, uh, regardless of what the facts are. And uh, that means we're not giving them a good incentive to tell us what they actually could find out. We're giving them an incentive to tell us what we want to hear, which is, again, a problem. And when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when your job depends on you not understanding something, you're not going to understand <laughs> that something. For, for example, though, we do get a lot of value about having experts in running agencies and, and being employed by them. There's no question about that. But but it's limited in the sense that we, a lot of things go wrong as well. So I've been interested in exploring, say, using betting markets as a way to aggregate information on facts and supplement that with other ways to choose values as a better way to do governance. And I have a lot of hopes about how that's an answer in the long run. In some sense, it's it's a, it's a meta answer to our problem. In that I know it, you've it, talked about it a bit. It could apply in a wide range of contexts, but I don't remember if we talked about this last time or not. Not enough. Explain explain how those prediction markets would work. So, um, a concrete example is: say you have a firm and it has a CEO, and one of the key choices a, C a firm makes about a CEO is: do we keep the current CEO? Do we dump them and swap to a new one? And that's a key governance choice. And typically, you have a board of directors who makes that choice, and they have relatively weak incentives. And typically, they are friends with the CEO or put in, put in place by the CEO, so they're not that eager to get rid of him or to pick a fight, have a conflict. So my proposal concretely for this case would be, it's a public company, it's got a stock price. And in an ordinary stock market, you trade cash for the stock. So if the price of the stock is 22, then if I give you $20, you give me a stock and that's the trade in the stock market. And so the stock market price at any one time is an estimate by the speculators of the value of this company averaging all over all the different future scenarios that could happen to that company. Demand could go up or down, there could be a new innovation, new competition. It's a, lot, it's a complicated analysis because, of course, there's so many scenarios, but still, every stock price is in essence an average, an attempt to average of the value, estimate of the value of that company over all the different things that could happen to that company. So, we're going to use that power of a speculative market, but now we're going to make two new different markets that are almost the same. In one market, we're going to trade cash for stock, but all those trades are going to be called off if the CEO leaves the company uh, in, by the end of the quarter. And in the other market, we're going to call off all these trades if the CEO doesn't leave by the end of the quarter. And the prices in these markets will be a lot like an ordinary stock market, except you're going to average over a smaller range of scenarios. So in the market where the trades are called off if the CEO leaves, well, you're only going to be averaging over scenarios where the CEO doesn't leave. And same way for the other market. And so now you get two different prices. One that says, how much is this company worth averaging over all the scenarios where the CEO stays? And the other is, how much is this company worth if we average over all the scenarios where the CEO leaves? And if those two prices are different, that's the speculators telling you, this company is worth more or less with the CEO compared to you know, some other new CEO. How does this play out with Tesla, the shorting, Elon? How would this scenario look? Well, the key question here is, if we're talking about the CEO, would, would 
Tesla be worth more or less without Elon? That's the question. Now, that's different from the question of how much is Tesla worth? Uh, that's how much value is he adding or taking away by his style of management? So he, speculators would then be asked to evaluate that. Now, they're going to be highly uncertain, of course. There's a lot of uncertainty that reflects stock prices right now. I mean, how well Tesla will do is, is um, a wide range of options. Things could happen. It could do really well. It could do really badly. And uh, speculators know they don't know that. And they, the price that you will see in the market is an average over all those things that could happen. Uh, but in, you know, in this market I'm talking about, now you're asking them to evaluate not just how much is Tesla worth overall, but under the two different scenarios, he stays or he leaves. So if you happen to think that even if it's not great investment, it's still, he's the best person they should have running it. Uh, he has all this name recognition and, and uh, the employees all love him and things like that. Well, you might think, look, if he leaves, it's still um, a bad sign and it would be a bad situation, in which case you would be recommending that he stay. But the key point is your recommendation would be based on your bets that you were putting your money where your mouth was and uh, you expected that if you were wrong, you would lose money. And that's going to keep you pretty honest about it. And Understood. We, so and we can apply that same thing to lots of other governance choices is the higher level point. I want to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Brand Crowd, an offshoot of Design Crowd, a company we use to get our podcast cover art done. They have a new service, Brand Crowd, that allows you to get awesome designs for logos from designers around the world. If you go to disruptors.fm slash brand crowd, you can enter in your brand information, find out a little bit more, and see what type of awesome designs they come up with for you. If you're rebranding or starting a new business, you know that logo is incredibly important. And you want it to stand out, especially in this crowd of way too much and me too type businesses. Disruptors.fm slash brand crowd for more details. That's B-R-A-N-D-C-R-O-W-D. Again, supporting them supports us and allows us to make this more sustainable. And now back to the program. How do you bring this aspect of economics into the way you think about and rationalize decisions? I know you've talked about it before in terms of who we decide to have for Immigrants, if we have so many people that want to come to a country, why is the process seemingly random? Right. So um, one way to think about it is, is we have a hot button issue like immigration. Since we're all so eager to sort of line up politically on our side versus their side, we take that issue and we, we project this axis in our mind. Well, what's the most central political axis of this question? And, and you know, my guess is the central political axis about immigration is how many immigrants? <laughs> that would be the thing we, we most comes to mind. Do we want more or less? Some people want more and some people want less. Um, and so then we focus on arguing about that axis. We're putting together our arguments and our passion for why more or why less and, uh, and showing our side our loyalty that we're with them, et cetera. But any question, uh, including this one, is really a high dimensional question. There's really a thousand different details to manage in this process. It's not just more or less. And facts usually, you know, a matter for all these different dimensions even if you're mainly showing your values on one of them. So I especially like to um, try to contribute by looking at other dimensions and saying, look, I'm, I'm not going to jump onto this more versus less thing. I mean, I can't add that much to it. You guys are, and you guys already think that's a value thing that I, as an expert, I couldn't add much. But you know what I could tell you? There's these other choices you'll be making. And uh, maybe you haven't thought through those very well. And maybe I can help you with some other choice other than more versus less. And so in immigration, a number of different choices we could make, but one is like, who? <laughs> How do we choose who? That's different than more versus less. And now some people get offended right there because they implicitly say, well, if you're going to talk about who, now you're assuming that it's not everybody and they want to argue for everybody. Well, okay. But, you know, mostly we're not 
likely to adopt the everybody thing anytime soon. Yeah, so it's as, not a, feasible. as a practical, well, it's not politically feasible. So as a practical matter, we're probably going to continue to not do everybody. So then it's still an open question. Who? And so I did a blog post recently where I said, well, we could use these prediction markets, these betting markets to make guesses about who. And in that context, I said, well, I was trying to set up a system that would sort of convince the skeptic. I was focused more on convincing a skeptic. You've got some person who's applied to immigrate who says, hey, I want to come. And uh, you're, you're a skeptic. You're worried that this will not be a good deal. And I was trying to come up with a way to convince you, uh, even if you're skeptical, that maybe this is a good deal under, under the assumption that, look, you know, a lot more people would be willing to come than you're actually going to be willing to let in. So you, you, you're going to be able to be pretty picky about it. And if you're skeptical, then I want to just find a way that, that you can find the best of the candidates and uh, in a conservative way, convince you that, hey, that, that's a good deal. So what I had in mind was tracking for each person who doesn't come into the country, all of how much they pay in taxes and how much they take out in government services. And uh, if that's a net gain, then you might, you know, even if you're skeptical about immigrants, you might be willing to say, well, that looks like a good, good one to bring in because, hey, they're going to basically bring us more cash uh, than they take. And so I was saying we, we could have a betting market on candidates to come in uh, where people traded assets that basically represented these, the value of this net tax revenue. So basically, if, if you have betting markets that say, these people are the people who the market expects to bring in the most net tax revenue, then that might convince a skeptic who might say, okay, those people I'll, I'll, I'll say are okay because you know, you've gone bending over backwards to convince me those people will not be a, a burden. How much flack do you get for the types of theories you come up with? I've got to imagine it's a ton because it's super smart, but yet super analytical to the point where a lot of people would get emotional. Well, it actually varies with how politically hot the topic is. So, you usually go for the politically <laughs> hot ones though, don't well, you? Well, I, I don't shy away from them, which isn't quite the same as going for them. So, I mean, actually the vast majority of things I write, you know, doesn't bother anybody. Nobody cares. But every once in a while, there is something that intersects with a politically hot topic. And then I don't follow the intuition many people do, which be to just run away and shut up. I still, you know, write the same sort of thing I would on it. And that risks more people being mad about it. Uh, but in that sense, it's less that they're emotional, at least from their point of view. From their point of view, the thing is that I'm trying to sort of do this perpendicular or sideways move. So, so I have this metaphor of saying, Many policy debates are basically tug of wars. There's this rope and people get on the different sides and they're pulling back and forth. And that's this one dimension everybody's focused on. But if there's all these other dimensions you could help with, a way of thinking about that is to imagine grabbing the rope and pulling it sideways. Not many people would oppose you, you would think, because they're all focused on pulling the rope in the other directions. And so you could have a lot more influence pulling the rope sideways. Uh, but of course, politically, what happens is that um, you, you come in there and pull the rope sideways. And they're convinced you really are a shill for one of the sides. And so they say, well, have you tried to convince me you're on our side? And if you haven't done the usual sorts of things that this person might do to convince you that you're on their side, they're going to figure, well, you must be a spy for the other side. You must be a shill for the other side. Uh, you couldn't possibly be really trying to go sideways. You must be trying to play at some clever variation on the tug of war. And so that basically people are quite willing to interpret any sort of sideways discussion as, as basically really in favor of the other side. Because it's not directly aligned with them. Right. Well, you haven't gone out of the way to show your alliance and, and your support of their side. And right there, that's suspicious because, you know, good people on their side would do that. Uh, you must be a bad person because you're on the other side. Right. Well, I mean, the other side hasn't endorsed you either and they're suspicious too. Mm -hmm. But uh, basically, whoever happens to be loudest in the area will be complaining that you, you must be 
against them because you're going sideways. It's interesting, though, because when you go sideways, if people are actually able to perceive it, they might not be so cool with you pulling them sideways. But when you're suddenly pulled into a tangential topic, so to speak, you're forced to be, wait, how the hell did I get here? And suddenly it shifts your perspective possibly enough to see other perspectives. Well, which is may, maybe they don't want. <laughs> which they definitely don't, they definitely don't want. So That's why we're using Facebook. look down that game tree, they would decide, no, I, I don't want to be tricked into talking about these sideways issues because from their point of view, they might be tricked into endorsing a position that would then be interpreted as being against their side. And so they're very wary of, of taking a position on these sideways issues exactly because uh, they can't be sure if it's, it's, which direction is loyal for their side. Do we need to force kids to have debate in school where they have to take both sides? Uh, well, I mean, this is more about how to make people more rational. I mean, debates don't actually make people more rational when they don't actually take the related actions. They just learn to give arguments. I would say um, if you want people to be actually more rational, you should just put them in context where the decisions have consequences and that they learn to see those consequences. That would be, uh, you know, so if uh, if kids early on, you know, had to repair something and then first argued about how to repair it and then tried to repair it and it worked or it didn't. Well, now, now they would learn <laughs> that if you just mouth off and say the thing that sounds good and makes the other side look stupid just to win debate points, that could go badly when you have to actually do something. I, I would much rather, you know, tie a context where they discuss and debate something to a, okay, and then they do something and they see if it works. Understood. A feedback loop. Right. I want to I want to pivot a little bit. I know you've talked a bit about the private prison system and something that you call, I believe, private punishment. Well, uh, actually, yeah, I was wanting to talk about this, but so I'm a I'm an economics professor, but I've been teaching law and economics for many years, and uh, I like the subject, uh, and so that means over the years I've been thinking a lot about law and what's wrong with it, and I would say that the thing that goes most wrong in our legal system is is the criminal part of the system. The criminal part of the system is the, the most centrally designed. So the non-criminal part of the system is actually relatively decentralized. It's how we handle contracts and torts and, and property and things like that. But the criminal part of the system, you know, the government not only decides what's a crime, the government decides how to punishment, the government manages the punishment, the government runs the prosecution office and the police office, the detection. Basically, the government runs pretty much everything about crime. And so, and it's very emotionally sensitive and it's very <laughs> fraught with all sorts of connections. And so now they're trying to be very careful by not offending people, but also they have to make all these decisions and it's all very centrally administered. So there's just a big messy system. And I'd say it's very inefficient. And so this, I think, is, is the part I would have the most hope for if you could introduce some competition into uh, the criminal system of having a vastly more efficient system and a vastly more effective system. And so part of the way I would hope to make it more effective is to take many of the decisions that we're now making collectively and privatize those decisions. Give people good incentives to make those decisions. So what, what decisions do we make today? We make decisions about who are police allowed to pull over in a traffic stop and what kind of evidence are they allowed to have? Uh, what kind of privacy the police is allowed to invade or not? Who sends to jail? Who gets out on parole? Whether we go to jail or whether we do torture or exile or death, you know, we, we were just making all these collective choices, not only about how to detect crime, how to prosecute it, how to punish it, how to discourage it. Uh, in other ways, other than punishing, via say monitoring or uh, invading privacy, we have just this whole set of choices that, that have to be made with respect to crime. But we they're centralized choices, and they are like intersect with all these things we're really sensitive about. So we just have this really kludgy, awkward system that nobody's that happy with uh, that does this badly. So 
I can imagine, and I, I can describe one if you let me know, <laughs> a, a private variation that could privatize a lot of these decisions. So, Let's hear it. so the key idea would be the government would still decide what's a crime and decide how important that crime is in the sense of how much we want to discourage it. And they would set a fine on the crime. Now, today we don't usually use fines for crimes because most people don't have that much money. Now, in the ancient world, they would just sell you into slavery if you didn't pay your fine, and that really encouraged people, but we aren't willing to do that today. So, uh, my alternative is to go with what we do for cars. So, on the, on the roads, what we have is typically a system where we require automobile liability insurance. That is, you can't be on the road unless you bought insurance that will cover somebody else if you have a problem with them. And so, that's the way we can make sure that you will pay somebody else cash if there's a car accident, even if you don't have much cash, because you will have had that liability insurance. So, my proposal then is just have crime liability insurance. Everybody must buy insurance to cover any crime they might commit. And that means for any crime you might commit, there's this pool of money that can pay for it, which would be the insurance company paying your crime liability insurance. Now, you might think, well, how is that going to discourage anybody from committing a crime? Because, hey, now everything's covered the by premiums the Premiums go up. <laughs> but now, see, the premiums go up. But in addition, you and your insurance company can negotiate a lot of details to bring your premiums down. And so, this is where the decision gets privatized. So, for example, you can decide, you and your insurance company can decide that even though the, the, you know, they will pay your cash, you're still going to get punished. You're still going to have some jail time, maybe some torture, maybe some exile, maybe some shaming, public shaming. Because they want to discourage you from it beyond the... And you want to discourage it too. So, you and them will choose some schedule of punishment. With oh, this is to this is so sadistic. This is like a sci-fi book, a dystopian sci-fi waiting to be or, written. Or a utopia one, depending on what it's doing. But the point is, you and your insurance company will decide what kind of punishments will go with what things go wrong. That's your choice now. It's not some arbitrary decision society's making. And in addition, in addition to punishment, there are other ways to discourage you from doing things. So for example, you could let your insurance companies read your emails, have a camera on your car, you could have a curfew, you could have plate limits on where you could go. In order to limit your insurance premium, you could agree to limits to your freedoms and you would choose those with your insurance company as a way to lower your premiums. This is like a free market version of the social credit system China's trying to do in a way. Well, it's related in the sense that uh, these insurance premiums that the companies offer is this rating of you. <laughs> it's a competitively chosen one, but um, yes, in essence, if these insurance companies roughly agree on how much premium to charge you, that's a way in which they have rated you and rated your risk. But it's a way in which if somebody thinks that's wrong, they have a competitive incentive to go fix it by offering you a better deal. So it's like, as with most things in the competitive economy, um, you know, so just in the job market today, you are rated by companies trying to hire you for jobs, right? You not all, we don't all get the same wages because the firms choose some people and offer them higher wages. So that's a way in which a competitive world of firms competing to hire workers rates you with a number. And of course, all insurance does that. So, uh, you know, life insurance companies rate you with your chance of dying and they offer you a premium based on that and et cetera. So it's, it's actually a pretty common thing. Schools rate you on your promising as, a, as an admission. So our society is full of ways in which there are ratings on people uh, that matter for their lives and that are competitively produced, but we don't do that in crime. So the idea here is to extend that idea to crime in particular. So the, the, um, there's three parts to my proposal, and we, I've described two of them here. So, what, one part is everything's punished with a fine. So, officially, nothing's punished by jail or anything else in terms of the, the, the government-run system. Then, the second part is required insurance. 
to pay that fine. And now that contract with your insurance company can specify any other punishments or any other limits on your freedom. And the third part of the proposal is since we're covering, you know, paying for all crimes with fines, we can now have a bounty system for the investigation and detection of crimes. Uh, We can put up that fine as a bounty and say, we don't necessarily have to have government run police to go detect the crimes. This is is precog minority report. Well, the uh, investigators would then be trying to find the cheapest ways to detect crimes, but they'll also be less corrupt in the sense that today, the blue wall of silence means that police protect each other. And so if they mistreat you or don't follow the rules, it's actually pretty hard to prove it and get them to respond and to change their behavior. But when any one bounty hunter can catch any other bounty hunter and prosecute them for breaking any rule, uh, now you will basically enforce all the actual rules. So, so today we have many laws on the books that we don't enforce, and that wouldn't happen here. Uh, every everything that was a crime, there'd be a bounty, and so you know, if jaywalking has a bounty, there'll be people watching out for you to jaywalk, and if you jaywalk, you will get caught and you will pay. Won't this inevitably lead to Soviet Russia, where you're just constantly spying on your neighbors, and everyone is ultimately getting imprisoned or getting well? That would be not s- imprisoned, but so that would be set. I mean, fundamentally. The whole system I've just described is sensitive to the parameters of how many crimes are there and what's the punishment. Now, you can imagine a version of the system where there's very few crimes and they aren't punished very much, in which case there's very little, um, you know, it's more of a wild west, right? Where on the other hand, if lots of things are crimes which are punished a lot, well then yes, uh, there'll be a lot of effort to detect and to punish them. So, uh, this system as I'm proposing still relies on a decent choice, central choice of what are crimes uh, and how many of them are and, and what are the penalties. So, but, but again, we, we already have that world in the sense that we already choose what is a crime and what are the penalties. And so the difference between a police state, a terrible police state and a mild free thing is largely, in some sense, like how many crimes are there and how high is the punishment? And who's getting paid? Let's, let's, do, a, let's do a devil's advocate scenario. I would, I would say the, U, the US far and away has the worst prison system in the world. We have a third of the locked up inmates worldwide. Right. Is the, is the problem the existing system? Or do other countries like a Germany, like a Sweden, countries in Europe that are a little more sophisticated with how they handle this, that don't have as much in terms of privatized prisons, that don't have as much in terms of war on drugs mentality, if let's put someone away type system, would something like that be sufficiently good? Well, there's a lot of different things that are different between, say, US and Germany and and other places in the world. One plausible claim, which I can believe, but I'm not sure of, is that in fact, the public is wrong about how effective prison is at discouraging things. That is, so that's one of the claims people make who push for prison reforms or reducing punishment is to say that, in fact, it doesn't do much to discourage crime, you know, that those extra years in jail. So if that's true, then this is another case where we're just aggregating the facts wrong. And a competitive system, as I described, would do much better that if the insurance company knows that putting you in jail for more years doesn't actually discourage it, they're not going to want to pay for it because they'd end up having to pay for those prison years and you would too. And so that would just quickly go away in a competitive world because it was ineffective. Whereas in a world like ours, when the policies are chosen by people who don't really know if it works and don't have much of an incentive to look into it, uh, then that's somewhat different. Now, I mean, that's not the only difference between the US and, and say somewhere it's like Germany. We also have differences in say, the willingness of ordinary people to aid with enforcement. So in many areas of the US, uh, the local population doesn't feel very tied to the police, doesn't feel much of an obligation to report or help the police with uh, criminal reporting or investigation. And so, in those contexts, uh, police don't get so much help, and so their criminals are better able to commit crimes, and that can explain differences in crime rates. Uh, you know, in a place like many places in Germany, where 
the local people feel a strong social bond and norm that if they see a crime, they should report it and they should help to report it and you know testify, et cetera, to bring someone in, then um, that's a huge resource to discourage crime. And especially if you see your friend or associate committing a crime, you will shame them and, and not want to associate with them. Those are all things that affect crime rights. And so part of the problem, again, with our government-run criminal system in the US is because of actual and perceived corruption, a lot of people feel very little of a sense of norm or desire to actually help out the police or to actually discourage crime. It reminds me of something I heard once. I, I've heard it twice, actually. I heard it while I was in Canada, and then I heard it from a Swedish entrepreneur as well. And they were saying the fact that they liked that they had to pay higher tax rates because they could afford to and what they got for the for the money, so to speak, and what other people got for the money was so worth it. And that's the big difference I see between the US and other places is two things. A, the money that people pay in taxes in the US, I don't think it's worth it based off of the actual results that are achieved. But I also don't think people think that it's worth it. Is it more the actual structure of society? Or is it the actual efficiency and trust in the government itself? Because I feel like in the US, both of those are very low. There's no doubt a lot of these differences, but you know, just highlight the most fundamental difference, the most fundamental point, which is the thing in common, which is that in all these societies, it's about this general perception that ordinary people have about things they don't understand very well and don't have that much data on. But still, that's driving the process is these just general, loose, distant perceptions. And that's the problem with having government run a thing like this, is that you're, you're kind of stuck with that. That's the nature of it. You know, democracies, voters, you know, get what they want, but they get what they want in the sense of what they think they want, what they believe they want, what they believe works. And that, of course, can be different in different places. But in even if it's different, it can just be wrong in both places. You, you can have people can believe they're getting a lot more than they actually are. And people can believe they're getting a lot less than they are. And people can believe that the thing they're doing is the most effective thing possible when it's not actually very effective and something else would be much more effective. That is true. Sometimes the switching costs might be too high, which is what holding it back. Do you call yourself a libertarian? Um, I, I say I lean libertarian, <laughs> which is to distinguish from being a libertarian. The, the word libertarian to many libertarians connotes a certain set of moral axioms and they have a very sharp definition of whether you're in or out with those. And so I'm just not going to declare that I'm in those sharp boundaries, but I'll say I tend to lean that direction. But that, that also is trying to indicate that I'm not an absolutist here and I'm not going to uh, say never, that sort of thing. I ask because you bring up oftentimes a lot of free market and capital capitalist type solutions to problems that sometimes I believe need a collective solution. Well, of course, um, I mean, many market solutions are collective. <laughs> They're just at different scales. So, you know, a company is a collective, a school is a collective, a club is a collective, and they're all collectives. But they it, are, but some need regulations to work. Look at healthcare in the US. Well, a hospital is a collective. So, you know, when you, and of course, collectives, even private collectives regulate. Uh, that is, if you work for a company, it'll, they will have regulatory rules about how you are supposed to treat your, you know, associates in your company. We regulate within most of our collectives, whether they're small or large. To me, I would focus more on the competitive process. To what extent can it encourage an improvement in whatever collective it is? Better question. Are there some problems that a free market economy cannot solve or are incentivized to solve in a bad way? There isn't just a clear definition of what free market means exactly when we're talking about big collectives. So, so for example, if we say, there are many nations in the world and you can move to another one 
Well, in, in some sense, the cheaper it would be to move to another country, the um, more the countries would be competing. In the limit of it being very cheap and easy to move, well, you've now you've got this world of competing companies, competing nations. That looks a lot like a free market competition. As I turn up this parameter of how much it costs to leave, at the other extreme, you're kind of stuck there and it's not free market at all. Well, is, is there a cutoff line, <laughs> you know, between these, the extreme parameters? You can see it's a continuum. It's not like one is or isn't. It's just the lower the cost of moving between countries, then the more they will compete and the better that will be for giving them incentives, but also the worse it will be for them internalizing some problems. So they say there are some problems such that each nation wouldn't want to put its full energies into it because it'd rather some other nation dealt with that. So say like dealing with aliens. If there are aliens out there, if, if we have one big nation in the world, well, it will definitely want to deal with the aliens well. Whereas if we have a hundred little nations, each nation says, well, I don't want to spend money on aliens. I'll let some other country spend money on aliens, right? And so this world of competing nations isn't an ideal world in the sense that there can be problems that uh, it might not deal with that well. And so that- So basically every state, every state will have its own, every state of everything will have its own set of constraints, which creates the problems in and of well, itself. I mean, I, I would phrase it as coordination is hard. That is, if we have lots of little things, there's a lot of competition, but then there's less coordination. Small things realize that or they often try to coordinate to solve collective action problems. But coordination is expensive and hard. Even on governments, coordination is hard. I mean, it's important to notice that, um, say, in the US government, we have, you know, dozens of different agencies and these agencies do not coordinate very well. They don't even <laughs> talk to each other. They're all part of the same government, but because they are different agencies, they find it similarly hard to coordinate as, say, different states would find it hard to coordinate. You know, 50 different agencies, 50 different states, they have a similar coordination difficulties it's more I think a lot of that i think a lot of that's incentive though well yes you want to build you know to build up your own build up your own budget so to speak uh, right but that's the same with different states each you know 50 states might not collectively agree to sort of deal with some international problem because they'd rather the other states did so really 50 agencies may well not agree to deal with some collective agency problem because uh, they'd each rather focus on their agency and therein lies the state of the world what is, uh, what is one thing that you're most excited or optimistic about and why? Oh, well, I am in the long run still really excited about these prediction market concept, which, which I didn't talk about that much. But the, the key idea here is it's a hard sell in the sense that, it, you know, it takes a little while to explain it. You probably have some reluctance and wariness. It doesn't seem that inspiring or, or morally pure, uh, you know, but I could show you that it, it works. And, uh, you know, show you data about how well it works. And then the more we can adopt trials and an actual practice, the more I hope that, uh, it could become more widely adopted. But the key thing I'm hopeful for is this is a, a sort of generic meta solution to the problem of choosing institutions. Uh, that is, um, you know, if we decide, you know, should we have collective public schools or not? Should we, um, you know, run the military this way or that? Should we have a bigger navy or army? We, we just have all these different choices. And usually we just have a whole bunch of different ways to think about each one. And we, and we have to just resolve the problem of decision making and governance over and over again in each of these new contexts. And here's this one mechanism that could like, it would be work to get it adopted. But once it was adopted, it could be applied to all these different areas. Um, it's direct democracy via capitalism, essentially. Well, my slogan is vote on values, but bet on beliefs. <laughs> so I'd say, take your problem, break it into the values and the beliefs. And for the values, keep doing what you're doing now, which say is often voting. And I'm not proposing to fix that part of it. But the other part, 
is the beliefs part. And I'm saying we can do a lot better about beliefs. We can do a lot better about producing collective estimates about the consequences of our actions, as in the case of the firing the CEO. That could be interesting for a, a Google search algorithm, people paying to choose which option they think is the most correct option to show first, second, et cetera, and if they're correct, being compensated. There's an enormous range of potential applications, although you know each one has issues in terms of what the overhead expenses are and what, how good are the alternative systems you'll be replacing, that sort of thing. And so you want to be you know somewhat strategic about where to try it first, but it's got this enormous range of applications. I don't know if you've ever read Lord of the Rings, but uh, there's the phrase, uh, one ring to rule them all. And in some sense, uh, I think of these decision markets uh, as this one ring in some sense. It's, it's one institutional innovation, and it's hard, but if you could get it adopted, it could basically help you choose all the other institutional choices you make. One gambling ring to rule them all. Right. I like it. What a, if you wanted to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, before you tell them a little bit more about you and where to find you, what would it be and why, Robin? I'd say if you want to help the world, the biggest thing that we could probably do is innovation in social institutions. Uh, that is, innovation is the, is the thing that makes the world improve over the long run by far. Uh, and social institutions, innovations there is especially hard because we have to coordinate to choose a new institution. And we especially fail to innovate to develop new versions or new new variations because there's not much of an incentive for anybody to try that out because they can't get a patent on it and they can't own it. It's hard to sell it. And academics sometimes explore these things, but they stop at the point where they've done a simple proof or a simple model or a simple lab experiment. And so, there's really this huge potential gain in the world from picking up those things where they get dropped and, and doing actual field experiments on different social institutions in order to get them to work in the real world. And that, that is this enormous gain that we are not achieving. And it's something that most everybody could do something with. Uh, it's not that hard. I think that's, I think that's a good takeaway. Scientists are great at doing and terrible at explaining. Well, they're, they're, scientists are good at like working out the basics of something, but that's not good enough. Somebody has to go farther and work out the details in real context. And scientists don't do that. Somebody else needs to. Got to get behind, beyond the experimental phase. Robin, tell me a little bit more about you, where people can find you, and why they should. I'm an economics professor here at George Mason University. I'm on Twitter. I have a blog called Overcoming Bias. I have two books that came out in the last couple of years, one called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, and the other, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, and Robots Rule the Earth. I've, um, you know, It's easy to find me and, and hear about me, and uh, you know, I don't know why you should. <laughs> if you don't find what I've been talking about interesting, I, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> I uh, I gotta love all the books you got in your office. It's it's reminiscent, or it's it's a mess. <laughs> it, it it's a mess, but it's also kind of you. You have so much going on in the head, and so many you yeah. focus on. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much for talking to me. And hopefully, you guys have enjoyed this. If you have, you know what to do. Share it with a friend, someone who might benefit, someone who could benefit from getting their perspective shifted a little bit. I, hopefully, this did that. So, uh, yeah, thanks and thanks, Robin. Take care. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.